Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, we're going to talk about ways to stay warm in your van if you do not have a heater. No propane heat, no diesel heat, no engine heat, just you and the van. We're also going to talk about the risks of propane, what you need to worry about if you have a propane system. We're going to have a tale from the road involving a place that only has one road, and a product review of the Oculus Quest 2, which might seem odd, but you'll find out. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. It is a crazy time, and I'm going to ignore all the craziness going on in the world right now and just focus on vans. Your van build, your van life, how to make things better for you on the road. And this time of year, temperatures are odd. In fact, weather is just crazy right now. I'm recording this in Chicago, where we haven't had any snow yet this season, and that's the first time that's ever happened in recording recorded history. I don't know what you're going to find out there in the road, but if you're traveling, there is a good chance you're going to go somewhere that it's cold. And maybe you're not a cold weather traveler. Maybe you're just someone moving a van that's not built out yet, or you're going to go somewhere cold for a couple of days because it's the holidays. However that works out, there may be a time when you find yourself in a van that does not have a heater, and you're not interested in putting a heater in it. There are ways to stay warm, and that's what I wanted to talk about this week. First, obvious tip is, while you're driving, heat up the van as much as possible. Put the heat on vent, not on the floor heat. Usually, most often, vans do not have heat in the back. All none, No cargo vans do. Some passenger vans do. Even if the seats are removed, there will be ductwork back there. Use that if you can. But if you're in a cargo van, set your heat to vent or defrost, that can work too, and crank it up all the way. Get that heat back in the van. Depending on how built out your van is, this will have a varying degree of effectiveness. If you just have a metal bare van, well, that heat's going to dissipate pretty quickly. But if you actually have a built out van with a bed and everything, that heat is going to warm up all the objects back there, and that will stay for a while. So you can actually get through an hour or so just from the heat from your engine. And heck, that's free heat. Your engine is going to get rid of that heat either through the radiator or through your heater system, so you might as well use it. It's not going to make your engine work any harder. The other thing is, and this is going to go against everything I've said in every other episode, if you're in this circumstance where you do not have a source of heat, don't have any ventilation. I know, I heard all of you yelling, what, as loud as you could, but hear me out. Ventilation in a van that you're heating is for two things. The first is to replace any exhaust gases with fresh air. This is true if you're using, say, a buddy heater or an Olympus Wave, a catalytic heater. Any kind of heat that doesn't exhaust outside the van, you want ventilation for that. Okay, the other is to get warm air out of the van that has moisture in it. Warm air carries moisture. If you let some warm air out, it will carry some moisture out and that will reduce condensation. But this isn't the situation you're in. The situation you're in is you're in a temporary circumstance where you need as much heat as possible. And in that circumstance, no ventilation. 
No, you're not going to suffocate. Vans and cars are not airtight. They're not close to being airtight. If you've ever watched a car drive into a river or a lake or something, you will notice that they sink. <laughs> this is because they're not airtight. Air is coming and going all the time. But you want as little of that as possible to maintain the maximum amount of heat in the back. Now, before you go to bed, if you can, take a hot shower. Like if you're going to spend the night at a truck stop or something like that, do your shower at night. Go in there, get nice and warm, get all hot from that shower, and then immediately go to bed in your van. All that heat that your body has absorbed will then be released into the van, and, well, that'll just be a lot more comfortable, if nothing else. Also, drinking hot liquids can help. Obviously, I'm not going to recommend you drink caffeinated coffee right before bed, but hey, you do you. Some people like a nice herbal tea or something like that, and some people will do it very simply and just have hot water with some lemon. You know, it, it really doesn't have to be much. The whole point is to get the hot liquid inside your body. Whether these things actually help maintain heat or are just for comfort, I'm not really concerned with because to me that's kind of the same thing. Now you are going to want a good quality sleeping bag and this is something you might not have. If you're a summer camper normally and you've got like the $8 Walmart sleeping bag, it's not going to keep you very warm. So what do you do? Well, if you have the budget, I recommend you do get a good quality sleeping bag. I mean, that's kind of an essential part of van life kit that I think everybody should have just for emergencies, if nothing else. But if you find yourself in a situation where you don't have a lot of money, take whatever you do have and go get one of those 7 or 8 or $9 Walmart sleeping bags. They may not have them in the winter. I hope you can find a place that does. But you can do the sleeping bag inside a sleeping bag trick. And that will actually make you pretty warm. I mean, down to reasonable temperatures, that'll keep you fairly warm. It may not be all that comfortable. It's going to be heavy and cramped. But at this point, we're just trying to talk about warmth. So you could do that. It's something some people may not know is that while shared bodily warmth is always recommended in survival situations or just because it's fun or whatever, you can actually share the same sleeping bag, but not in the same sleeping bag. Sleeping bags unzip. Now, that may not be true of some of the really high-tech mummy bags or something like that, but most traditional sleeping bags will unzip completely to be flat like a blanket. Well, you can actually take two of those and zip them together and make a giant sleeping bag that you can both get in. But you actually may want to try to have three sleeping bags to do this with because you won't have a whole lot of room to move around. So yeah, you can actually just like daisy chain a bunch of sleeping bags and you'll have enough space for both of you. And if you have more than one person in a sleeping bag, that's going to help you stay a lot warmer. And yes, dogs count. Now, you have to think about where the heat is going. It's going outside your body, right? So it isn't just rising. You can lose heat through the bottom of your body as well as the top. I had this happen to me one very cold night in the trailer I had that had the pop-out tent. The sleeping platform actually folded out from the top like a hinge and was suspended in midair. And it was just a piece of plywood covered with fabric. And you were supposed to put your mat on there and then sleep on that. But boy, that 
really made it very easy for heat to go out the bottom and I learned quickly that I wanted to have a lot of insulation between me and that padding. If you have an air mattress that will actually do a fairly decent job but a couple of blankets or whatever can help too so make sure you have blankets below you and above you. That's the concept. What should you wear while you're sleeping? No heavy clothes. Like don't wear your parka and snow pants into the sleeping bag. You're not going to sleep well like that and then those things are going to absorb moisture and they're not going to be is effective. The advice I always got in Boy Scouts, and yes, we did do winter camping in zero degrees Fahrenheit, was don't wear anything in your sleeping bag except warm socks and a hat. Now that was back in the days where they thought most heat escaped from your head. We now know that that isn't true. It was based on a flawed military study, but still you want to wear a hat or what I like when I'm sleeping in really cold weather is a hoodie. I know I just contradicted myself, I do that a lot, but the hoodie, the hood part, is a very comfortable way to sleep. It keeps the cold off your face, and you can even like scrunch it down and tie the knot there with the cord so just your mouth is hanging out. Speaking of which, you do not want to have your whole body engulfed in the sleeping bag. If you breathe into the sleeping bag, all that moisture from your breath is going to go into the sleeping bag and it's going to end up being colder in the long run. And then you have a wet sleeping bag you have to deal with, which is no fun. That clothing, by the way, that you're not wearing, some people suggest you put it in your sleeping bag. Now, different people, you know, sleeping bags all come in kind of the same size, mostly. I mean, they do have different sizes, but I'm six foot tall. When I'm in a sleeping bag, my feet are touching the bottom and my head and shoulders are outside the sleeping bag. There's not a lot of space in there for me. But if you have space, consider putting your morning clothes in the sleeping bag with you. You will thank yourself in the morning because not only will you not have to get out of your sleeping bag to get dressed, your clothes will be warmer. <laughs> so that is a good tip. But for me, it doesn't work all that well because there's just not enough space. Now here is a pro tip. Make the space that you're heating smaller. Yes, I'm saying that consider getting a one-man or very small tent and setting that up inside the van. Yeah, it might sound crazy, but that tent will help keep warmth in that space. And that's the only area you care about being warm is your body at this point. So being in a tent or even a mosquito net, as crazy as that sounds, that will create a little bit of a heat bubble and that can make a huge difference. And you can make one with a tarp or whatever. I mean, if you hang bungee cords from the ceiling, you can make a quick impromptu tent and I know it doesn't sound like this would make a big difference, but it actually can. That airspace between your sleeping bag and the tent or whatever you've rigged will stay warmer than trying to let it all out into the entire van. So really, that will make a big difference. Plus, having a one-person tent like that as part of your regular kit isn't a bad idea in case for some reason you can't sleep in your van. At this point, many of you may be thinking, well, I'm just going to turn on my propane stove or I'm going to leave the van running all night. And I'm going to say, don't do those things unless it's a survival situation and you will freeze to death if you don't do those things. Don't do them. They're not safe. Leaving the van running all night is bad for your van, and it can be bad for you if there's any kind of an exhaust leak. Because remember, your van is designed to be used while moving. It is not designed to sit in one place for eight hours, and if there's any kind of exhaust leak, it can pool under the van and get into the van, and then you just won't wake up. You'll be nice and warm, but you won't wake up. And propane stoves 
which can be safely used indoors, require a lot of ventilation, much more than a buddy heater, and there's an open flame there, and bad things can happen. So avoid doing that if you possibly can, especially while you're asleep. I mean, that is really over the line of safety for me. However, there are two ways that you can add heat to your van. That is, we're not talking about just keeping your body warm here. We're talking about adding heat to the situation. One is the time-honored and oh-so-lovely hot water bottle. Now, you can use a Nalgene bottle or an old Coke bottle, or what I like is one of those old-fashioned rubber hot water bottles that you can find at the pharmacy. Fill it up with hot water and put it in your sleeping bag. You will be surprised how long that heat lasts. Water absorbs a lot of heat. So you just boil water or make it, don't maybe not boiling, make it pretty hot. You got to judge that based on the container. Add the water to it and put it in the bottom of your sleeping bag. You don't want to use a thermos for this because that won't release enough heat. You want to use something without that much insulation. Or... Alternately, you can get some hot hands. You may have seen these in stores. They're very popular in ski areas and outdoor stores, but they're these little plastic packets that look like they have tea bags in them. And when they're exposed to air, a chemical reaction happens and they get pretty hot and they last a long time. I have slept in winters with hot hands many times and it has kept me warm all night. It's very nice. And the way I do it is I open the packet and there's usually two in there. I will put one by my feet and then I will have another at my chest level. And what I find that I do during the night is I will kind of move that one by my chest level wherever I feel like I need it at the moment. And then in the morning, I just throw them out. They cost eh, between 50 cents and a dollar a pack, depending on how you buy them. You can get them in bulk from Amazon or from Costco, but boy, they can make life a lot better. So there are some tips for when you're out on the road and you don't have a dedicated source of heat, but you still want to stay warm. I wouldn't recommend any of these for a long-term solution, but for those transitional nights, boy, they can really make things more comfortable. Tech Talk. There has been a lot of talk online recently about a, a tragic accident that I think happened in Long Island. I actually haven't been able to track down the source of this. But a woman was driving in her van, and the van exploded, basically, and there was a big fire, and her passenger died, but she survived, and everyone's like, oh, propane's not safe in vans, you can't have propane in vans, etc., whatever. Well, okay, based on what I know of the story, and I'm not even sure that I'm right, this was an unsecured propane tank in the back of a van, and heck, people drive like that all the time whenever they're getting gas for their grills. So this isn't just a van life problem. But it does call into question how safe is having propane in your van. Some people say that it can't ever be safe, and that's true to some extent. Nothing can ever be safe. But you're in a vehicle that has 10, 20, 30 gallons of gasoline in it? That's pretty scary. That's a lot scarier than propane, actually. So why aren't people scared of that? And it's because gasoline is, is professionally designed and studied and is made as safe as it possibly can be, where propane, if it's done by a DIYer, well, you don't know what it's going to be. So let's talk about ways to add propane to your van safely, at least as safe as you can be without actually being a professional. And yeah, sure, if you have the resources, you absolutely should use a professional to install anything that involves propane in your van. But I also live in the real world, and I know a lot of you are just going to throw a tank in the back and attach a hose to it. 
For those folks overseas, in the U.S., we refer to liquefied petroleum gas, LPG, as propane. Technically, that's just one of the ingredients, but that's how we talk about it. In other countries, butane can come in cans, but for the sake of this discussion, let's just assume I mean any bottled gas. All right, so there's two basic dangers here, well, at least. There's three or four. There's probably 20, but... Propane itself is not something you want to breathe, but that generally isn't the thing people are worried about. They're worried about it exploding, or they're worried about it leaking out and causing a fire. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Burning it has a whole other set of risks. I'm going to leave that for another discussion. We're just talking about storing the propane at this point. Propane tanks all have release valves that if they get too hot, they will release, and that's to prevent a blev, as they call it, a very large explosion of the tank. So if your tank gets too hot, that valve is going to release, and then your van's going to fill with propane. That is always a risk. Or if that valve fails, which it's much more likely to do, if you have refilled one of those green one-pound tanks, which I do not recommend you do. So because of that, the best practice with propane tanks is to keep them in an enclosed cabinet that vents to the outside through the floor and that is because propane is heavier than air so in my ambulance that I'm building out there is a cabinet that I built that has a drain in the floor and it goes outside the van now if anything happens with that tank okay all that gas is going to dump out the bottom of the van. This is not a great situation, but at least it's not in an enclosed space. And that's where explosions can happen. It's when propane collects and then meets an ignition source. That's when you have an explosion. Fires are a different matter. Fires happen usually when there is a leak in a hose and there is a jet of propane coming out and that hits an ignition source. That is arguably less dangerous than an explosion, but a fire is never good and it can certainly ruin your day and your life and the life of others. So these are what I consider to be the best practices for putting propane in your van. First, do a lot of research, understand what you're dealing with here. Understand the nature of propane, definitely know the smell of propane because that's crucial and definitely have the proper regulator installed. If your propane tank is hooked up to anything, it needs to have a regulator. Then, on a regular basis, check every connection with soap and water, or, or just soap, or you can actually go and buy a bottle that has a little dauber in it that you put around every connection, and if any gas is escaping at all, bubbles will form. If that's happening, turn off the gas immediately and fix that problem. And you can do your own research on how to do that. It's complicated. It's not as simple as tightening it. Different fittings require different things, so I'm not even going to get into that, but make sure you don't have any leaks. And then when you install your hoses, protect them somehow. Put them in conduit, put them in some protected space where they won't rub, because this is the situation I think a lot of DIYers get in, is they're using rubber propane hoses, which can be okay, there's controversy over that, but they can be okay, and they rub on something and a little hole appears eventually over time, and then you get that problem. Now, what do you do if you don't have a locker? Well, I would recommend then you always have your tank off. Turn that valve completely off all the time, which is never a bad idea. Honestly, every time you're traveling, you should have that tank off. Anytime you're not using it, you should have the tank off. But again, I live in the real world, and I know that's not how people act. But if you do not have a locker for whatever reason, make sure that valve is off. You could consider putting it in a trash bag or something like that to enclose it, or mount it on the outside, which is what a lot of people do. 
but don't make that your permanent setup. Don't. Those one-pound tanks, those green tanks, obviously you're going to use them when they're not in a locker, but it's a limited amount of gas, and that's supposed to be temporary. It's not supposed to be a permanent thing. And the last bit is to make sure you know what to do if you smell gas. If you smell gas, immediately turn the valve off, the main valve on the tank, open every window and door and ventilate that, and then don't do anything until you find the source of that leak. Your system is done until you find the source of that leak. At any rate, yes, there are ways to use propane safely, but you have to be careful. It is one of the more dangerous things in your rig. But heck, so is electric. So it's a trade-off. Tales from the road. Well, this tale, I may have told this tale before because it's one of my favorites, but hey, I'm in episode 104 here, so sure, we can have repeats. I took a group to the South Pacific. Uh, We were on a ship leaving out of Australia. We did a tour in Australia, and then we headed to New Caledonia. New Caledonia is actually where McHale's Navy took place, if you ever watched that old show. But it's a, it's a group of islands that's part of French Polynesia. And we went to several of the islands. But the one that hit me the most was an island called Lifu. That's L-I-F-O-U. It's a tiny little place that has literally one road on it. A very small population. And we went there in this massive cruise ship where I'm positive there were more people on our ship than there were on the island. And we tendered ashore because their dock wasn't big enough for our ship, which doesn't surprise me, and wandered around looking for, like, what to do. Now, this was an unusual port because there were no excursions we could buy. There were no bus tours. There was no shopping. It was just a semi-pristine South Pacific Island, and I loved that. (laughs) I thought it was great. And I probably have 30 stories from this island, but I'm going to stick with just one in the interest of time. We knew there was some kind of a cave or something on the island, and we wanted to kind of see what that was. And it wasn't too far from the ship, so we walked up that area. And there was a man wearing gym shorts and nothing else, waving a toy pirate gun at us. Now, this is the kind of gun that you would get at Pirates of the Caribbean and Disney. You know, it was like a wooden stock with an orange tip. It was clearly not a real gun. There was no danger of that. But he was kind of menacing with it, like he wanted us to think it was a real gun. And he didn't speak English, so we weren't really sure what was going on. So I led the group away from there, (laughs) because I thought, okay, this probably isn't the best situation. Later on, I realized that he was actually the quote-unquote guardian of the cave. Now, I have learned that in the South Pacific, locals will appoint themselves probably unofficially as the guardian of places that tourists want to visit. And you're supposed to pay them to visit the place. And in return, they keep the place clean and such. I was annoyed at this at first. And then I realized that this is actually a pretty good thing. And it's not like they're charging 20 bucks or anything. I negotiated with the guy as much as I could with my very limited French and his non-existent English and discovered that he wanted $2 from each of us to go visit this cave. Now, being the group leader, I think I gave him a $20 bill or something like that. I negotiated. It doesn't matter. But anyway, we got past him with his blessing and without the menace of his fake gun and headed off to the cave. We didn't know anything at all about this cave. 
But we got there, and there was a very treacherous trail down to this cave. It was basically a massive sinkhole, and someone had carved a trail that winded down the sinkhole until you got to the cave. And, well, some of the folks weren't too happy with me that I took them to this place, but uh, I loved it, and we went down and into the cave, and I thought, oh, okay, well, that's the end of that. And then, surprising to me... As we went into this small cave, there was a light, and I could see it was a bare light bulb hanging from the ceiling, I guess, of the cave. And if I, when I looked carefully, I could see that this thing was attached by like 30 extension cords leading up the side of the sinkhole. And I realized that when I got close to it, that the light bulb was lighting up water. There was a small pond or lake or whatever in this cave and we were supposed to swim in it. That was what you were supposed to do. I realize now that we were in a cenote, which is a sinkhole that's filled with water and people tend to associate those with Mexico and Central America, but yeah, they can happen anywhere. And on this Island, that was a limestone Island in the South Pacific. It turns out there were several of them. And the group is looking at me for what to do. And I'm thinking, well, this is a College of Curiosity tour. We're here to be curious. We're here to do curious things. And I realized that I had to jump in the water. Now, there was like a cliff over the edge of this thing. And you were supposed to like just jump in to this wanly lit water. I mean, it's this black pool. <laughs> and I don't know what's down there. I don't even know what kind of water it is. But... I'm the group leader. I have to encourage these things. So I stripped down to a reasonable amount of clothing, got up to the edge, and then using a skill I had learned when I had jumped out of a hot air balloon earlier, I just jumped. And I splashed into the water and went down a few feet and came back up. And I thought, whew, okay, good. It's great. The water's a comfortable temperature. I didn't hit anything. And then I realized I was in fresh water. Now, this concerned me because fresh water is more likely to carry pathogens than salt water. And here I was swimming in it. And yeah, this was probably a great place to get one of those brain-eating amoebas or something. But a, maybe that's just my Western overactive sense of hygiene coming in, or I don't know. But at any rate, I said, come on in, the water's fine. And about half of the group did actually join me in there. And then we crawled out. Of course, we didn't have any towels. And we climbed back up the cenote. And by the time we got to the top, we were fairly dry because it was a nice day and all that. Well... I thought that was the end of the story because that was kind of an adventure, right? Well, it turns out that that cenote is kind of famous in scientific communities because they found nautilus shells at the bottom. Uh, you know, nautilus is a famous kind of seashell. You can Google a picture of it and you'll say, oh yeah, that. Well, they found some living down there, which isn't that surprising, except that they're saltwater creatures. They don't live in freshwater. And through research, they found out that all of the nautilus that lived in that pond all died at the same moment. And that moment was when that piece of the island was raised up. Those nautilus shells were in there when there was salt water in there. And then, boop, the island rose up and rainwater was able to get in there and gradually remove all the salt over time. And those seashells are from that event. And they were 700 years old. So that was kind of a cool thing to find out. Sometimes, yeah, just go jump in the water. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> well, I suppose it's death. Hmm. 
product review. This is one of the strangest product reviews I've ever done for Vans, but I'm actually going to recommend this thing. And I have a I have a coupon code. I have actually a code that I can give you. No, I'm not being paid for this. This is not an official ad. But hey, if you use my code, both of us make out. So I think we each get $60 credit. But hey, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Oculus Quest 2, also known as the MetaQuest 2. It's a VR headset. Now, I never would have recommended VR for van life until I tried this thing out. What makes this thing actually kind of cool for van life is that it doesn't have any cords. It's a headset you put on and then two hand controllers, no cords, no cables, and no Wi-Fi needed. All your games are stored on the device. Now, of course, some of them use Wi-Fi, but if you have a regular old shooter that doesn't need a Wi-Fi connection, you can play it on this with nothing else. Also, it charges on USB. And I have tried PlayStation VR before and all that kind of stuff. This thing is really pretty amazing and yes you can watch movies in it you can watch tv in it you can even do facebook in it if you really want to but i think that it may actually may be a pretty good solution for van life folks now it is a headset some people find it uncomfortable some people don't like the way it looks you can get motion sick in it you have all these vr problems but if it's vr is something you have considered this probably is the device to get for van life now, so I've been using it for a while. My wife has one too. I just got them for my kids. It's it's pretty cool. You can see videos and stuff about it. Yes, I will have links in the show notes, including the code. Now, the cons. What's wrong with this thing? Well, look, it, this is VR stuff. This is cutting-edge technology. A few years from now, this device is probably not going to be worth anything. But it's only 299 bucks, which is not nothing. But for this type of experience, I think it's pretty reasonable. The controllers use so little battery life that they're just double A's, but they're guessing that that double A will last a year. So that's amazing. I suppose the biggest drawbacks are that the battery life is only about two hours, but you can actually plug it in and use it if you want to. And it's owned by Facebook. You have to have a Facebook account. And I am not a big fan of Facebook as a company, and I can totally understand why that would be a turnoff to people. I do use Facebook heavily. I feel like I don't have a choice. But you have to know that if you use this thing, you have to have a Facebook account, and it does do stuff with data. I don't know what. Anyway... If this sounds like something you'd like to try. Oh, and, and one other cool thing, all the games that you can get for Oculus that are installed on the device, you have two weeks to try them out. As long as you don't play the game for more than two hours, you can return them for full refund, which I think is awesome. So this is the Oculus Quest 2. It's brand new. It just came out in November. And if you would like to use my referral code, you will get... $60 in credit to use on the game system, which is awesome. Uh, and that, that expires, I think, on December 30th, at which point you will get $30. So even if you're listening to this later, you're still going to get 30 bucks if you use this link. And it is Oculus.com, that is O-C-U-L-U-S, Oculus.com, referrals, slash link, slash hook, walk a bang. Yeah, I'll have a link in the show notes because I don't expect anyone to be able to type that. But I like it. It's pretty cool. And it's a kind of a fun, modern thing that you can have in any van or on an airplane or in a hotel room or wherever you happen to be. A place to visit. Folks, it's winter. If you're going to embrace the winter, I can't think of a better place to do that than Vermont. When I lived in Vermont... 
Summer, as beautiful as it was, as lovely as it was, Vermont in the summer is amazing. Winter is when everything came to life. Vermont is made for winter. It's a place that they knew the winter was going to be there, and they just embraced it. In fact, it's winter in Vermont more than it is any other season. If you are looking for a place to experience the winter and the joys of winter, try Vermont. Now, there are problems with van life up in Vermont. There aren't all that many places to park, but if you can solve that problem, and there are ways to do it, it's a wonderful place to visit, especially if you're into like the holiday spirit. Lots of trees, there's going to be snow almost guaranteed, and you can go to places like Trap Family Lodge, which is the most Christmassy place ever. That's in Stowe, Vermont. There's all the ski resorts and lodges. Everything is open. I mean, that's the weird thing about Vermont. Everything is open in the winter. Nothing is closed. I'm going over on this episode, so I don't want to take too much time on this. But seriously, if you ever wanted to visit Winter Paradise... Winter Headquarters, check out Vermont. It is a wonderful place. Resource recommendation. A YouTuber that I no longer like, but I used to like, had a problem that her inverter died, and she didn't know what to do, and she's like, oh, Amazon's going to take two days, what do I do? And she was totally dependent on her inverter. She didn't know where to find one. Well, if you're ever in the need of a 12-volt appliance while you're on the road, and you need it right away, you can't use Amazon or anything else, don't go to the camping stores. Don't go to Walmart. Go to a big truck stop because they all have a big 12-volt section. They all sell inverters. They all sell all the adapters and cables and everything you need. And the heck, they sell 12-volt popcorn poppers and microwaves and frying pans. Basically, all the 12-volt accessories that, from, that you see online from Road Pro or whomever, you can find at truck stops. So just file that away in your memory that if you are in emergency need for a 12-volt appliance, including an inverter, you can find them at truck stops. Usually the biggest ones and the best ones are found at the crossroads of two interstates in that area, because obviously that's where most of the trucks are. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this episode 104. I am Jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember this Japanese proverb. One kind word can warm three winter months.